In this God and Sexuality series, we seek to explore the intent of God's design in this wonderful gift of life and sexuality, knowing that the ways of God in all things lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. In a time of Tinder, hookup culture, porn, gender fluidity, same-sex attraction, HBO, and the politicization of sex and all the gender debates, there are numerous voices clamoring to be heard on these topics. But at a deeper and more personal level, we know that our sexuality has incredible power to form us, power to bring health and flourishing, or pain and destruction. We are not looking to pick a fight with anyone, but rather show that any difference we may have most probably doesn't start with our beliefs on sexuality, but rather our beliefs on God and His intent and design for this world and its people. We want to create a place for all people to bring their whole lives, including their sexuality, to Jesus and let Him do the restoring work He needs to do. Now we will listen to the next installment of the God and Sexuality series. Guys, I'm excited to be speaking about singleness tonight. And as an intro to this subject, I have asked Veronica, who is part of the leadership team of our Single-Minded course, to come and tell us a little bit about the course that's been running over the last few years, how it started, why it started, and kind of some of the effects it's had. And then Inga, who's kind of one of the evening service people, attended that course this uh, year, so she's gonna tell us a little bit about that. So, Veronica, firstly, thank you for what you guys do in giving leadership to this great ministry and, and running this course. But tell me where it started, how it came about, and why this is important. And let's just encourage Veronica, it's not everybody's cup of tea to be on the stage, right? Well done. I appreciate your courage. Hi, everyone. Um, in 2017, there were a group of us, and we got fed up, and we'd just been invited to another woman's weekend away, and we were convinced that we were going to hear about being a good mom and being a good wife. And the group of us, we were none of those things. And so we spoke to a couple of ladies in leadership and we worked on trying to sort that out. And essentially, in, as you'll know, in society, there's so much pressure on singles to be in a relationship. And also in the church, sometimes you can get the sense that the thing you need to do really is get married and get on with it. And um, this can leave you, especially as an older single person, as feeling like you've missed something and you haven't really grown up. Um, and there's a sense of failure that comes with that. So we ran our first pilot course in 2018 and we've run one every year since then. And um, although initially we started out with a group of ladies who were over 30, um, this year we had almost everybody, we had um, from people in their 20s to people in their 50s and included everybody, pe singles who had never been married, um, people who were single again, divorced or single again, widowed. And it was a really great mix of people. Um, and I guess the, the purpose is of the course is to um, give a safe space for people to talk about their experiences of being single, uh, both in society and then kind of have a look at what it says about being single in the Bible. And yeah, to, to get people to sometimes voice their fears and their concerns and to get them to understand that they are not alone. Um, yeah, and I guess that, that you want to be able to look forward positively um, in terms of being single and to find some sense of your identity in Christ. Yeah, brilliant, that's great. Inge, tell us a little bit about your experience. Cool, um, so I would love to encourage us to, well firstly scripture tells us those who seek the Lord and those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. And I think we often tend to see singleness as a state of lack hmm. and a transitional period that we all should get married. Um, and I think that's because of the cultural narrative that tells us that you'll only be content, satisfied, or fulfilled if you get married. But that does Jesus such a huge dishonor and um, 
we, we know that that then becomes an idol, to believe that anything else other than Jesus can satisfy you and fulfill you in this life. Um, so I'd say that the single-minded course provided a space for us to have conversations around that, to, to have conversations for those who feel like they may be called to singleness, and also for those who are grappling with the very real tension, which is knowing that Jesus is your contentment and satisfaction, and having a desire to be married one day. So it creates a space to, to have those conversations for various people um, mm. and just to get a better understanding. That's brilliant, very cool. So I'm not single, um, and it would make sense in many ways to ask a single person to preach into a subject like this. And that was one of the things we were considering. We engaged with some of the single-minded leaders, and they said, no, they feel like there's value and importance in me as a pastor and an elder in our context speaking into this. So help me understand, Veronica, why? Why the team would have said that and why we didn't pass the ball to one of our singles? Okay, so there were a few different opinions on this, but overall, uh, we, we agreed that it would depend on what you were talking about. No pressure. Um, yeah, and if you were gonna talk about your ex experiences of being single, your concerns or frustrations, and the joys of being single, then you unfortunately are the wrong person. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you were going to kind of research, um, delve into the theology of singleness, how it's portrayed in the Bible, then that is important. And m most importantly, single people as part of the body of Christ what affects one of us affects all of us, so yeah. you do need to address it. And to pastor it, and I'm excited to do so, but you guys are gonna take my whole sermon if you carry on talking, so I'm gonna invite you to stand off. Thank you guys, let's encourage them. I am super excited about speaking to you about this. I have grappled deeply, just a little bit of my preaching process. Uh, most often, a couple of weeks before I start giving thought to it, Tuesday morning I give a few hours to it, Thursday I give the whole day to it, I then park it, come back to it at about three, four on a Sunday, uh, Saturday afternoon, and see how long it takes me into the evening. Now I did all of that, and by Thursday afternoon I was like, feeling good. I'm ahead of where I normally am in my preaching prep. I got to it yesterday with a bit of angst and, and decided actually, hey guys, I'm gonna tap out of family reality and get stuck back in at about two o'clock yesterday afternoon. And I went to sleep at 3.30 this morning. And I found myself absolutely grappling with this huge call that the scripture kind of makes on singleness and this huge view that God has of singleness. And I must be honest, that I was grappling with things that I have not personally grappled with to date. And as I, as I did that, I felt this burden of responsibility come upon me to help us as a community get God's view on singleness. And as I did that, I did find myself kind of weighed down by the responsibility of that and the call of, of, of what Jesus is saying here in his word, which we're gonna to get to. But I also found an excitement coming upon me that we can really serve so many people in our community. And so there's, there's a, an excitement because of that, but there's a weightiness to this too. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna to speak to two subjects, really. Firstly, we're gonna to speak to the subject of singleness. That's a subject on its own. And then we're gonna speak also to singleness and sexuality. That's a separate, different subject, interlinked, obviously. And we're gonna weave between these two subjects today, but it's worth recognizing those two, sing those two separate things. Singleness, the state of being single and God's view on that. Singleness and sexuality, what that means for single Christians when it comes to sexual expression. And we're gonna, we're gonna see this being made clear, hopefully, from God's word to us today. What it's not, this is not a purity talk. This is not a boundaries talk. This is not gonna be anything like that. We are wanting to raise our gaze, hopefully, to understand how God views singleness. And we're gonna take, hopefully, a high-level view of that and then also how that, view of singleness influences and informs our singleness and sexuality as Christ followers. Again, I do wanna just take a moment to say thank you. 
to people that have served in this moment. I'm not gonna have opportunity to quote all of these people all the time, but I've gleaned lots from John Tyson and Tim Keller and Sam Albury and others that I'll quote today as we go through here. But the reality is that I won't be able to, to reference all of them all the way. So is the mic sounding weird to you guys too? Is it just me? I can hear something talking to me in the back here somewhere. It's the technology demons. Um, three reasons why I believe this is a vitally important subject for all of us to kind of deal with and grapple with. Firstly, because just like Veronica said, we are the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ and what affects one of us affects all of us. If you are married and that is going poorly, that affects all of us. If you are single and that's going fantastically, that affects all of us. We get to celebrate with those who celebrate. We get to grapple with those who grapple. We get to mourn with those who mourn. It's important that we recognize we all have a vested interest in each other's well-being. Secondly, I think this is important because singleness is all around us. Now that sounds silly to say in an evening congregation where I would say most probably upwards of 70% of the people in the room are single, right? But each of us, every single person across the whole of Bosch either have been, are, or likely will be single again. And all of us have single people that are, are dear to us and close to us. And did you know that as a generation growing up today, you are the generation that will experience and live in singleness for the longest amount of time as a generation throughout human history. In South Africa, Stats Essay says that in 20, uh, 2001, the average age of a bride was 25. But by 2019, that age had gone up to 33. The stats are saying that currently, a quarter of the adults in the world are single, with that percentage going up to almost 45% in some countries. Right here in Common Ground Bosch, roughly 400 adults out of the 1,800 adults that call Bosch their home are singles. That's one in five people in our community are singles. And let me just say this real quick. I, I recognize that it would be wrong to paint all singles with a single kind of singles brush, right? We actually have three categories of, of singles, and, and I can identify those categories right here in the room. We have the, the first category, which is the youthful singleness. Zoe, where are you? Give me a shout. This morning, Zoe stood up. This is why she was laughing during her announcements. In the second meeting, she stands up and she goes, this one unfortunately pertains to me. And then she speaks about a singleness thing, right? See, youthful singleness, what are the characteristics of youthful singleness? They're all heads up. They're all looking. They're all hoping. They're all anticipating, right? That's youthful singleness. But they are unestablished in life. And they are still kind of moving towards most probably not really thinking currently much about singleness. Then you get your mature single, right? Your mature single, Veronica was a, is a great example of that. And, and she's a lovely person in the life of our community, more advanced in age than Zoe, but she is more established in her life and her career and she's getting on with it. And she has grappled with her singleness more substantially, hopefully in Christ to a place of security and, and, and safety and kind of, kind of acceptance and, and celebration of that in some ways. That's your mature Christian, I mean, sorry, mature, mature single. Then you have a third category of, of single. And your third category, this is your single again person. This is a person who, through either divorce or the loss of a spouse, finds themselves in that place of being single again. This person is most probably reorientating in life maybe needing to get reestablished in life, this person is often grappling freshly with, and, and we would say about the kind of mature um, single and also the single again person, there's the possibility that they heads up and wondering and looking and open. 
but possibly not for both of those categories. But this person is hopefully working through healing and wholeness and freshly grappling with what it means, matters of identity and security in their singleness, uh, in a single again reality of life. Three different types of singles with very different realities and opportunities and challenges and circumstances around us. But here's the thing. For all three of these different categories of singles, these matters of singleness and sexuality are relevant. They're relevant for all of them. Questions for the Christian singles naturally arise. Does God expect all singles to remain sexually inactive? So what is God's best for me as a single sexually? If I am lonely, is it okay for me to pursue or date a non-believer? And are there other encouraged kind of forms of intimacy to the single Christ follower? And that leads to the third reason why I feel like it's vitally important that we all speak to this, and that's because we need to make sure that we've got God's clarity and God's view on this. We've been saying this throughout the series, right? This whole sexuality series, that the important thing for us is to understand that God has created us and he has created us with purpose. And as we understand his creative work and his design and his purpose and we find ourselves aligning to that, we come into the possibility and the reality of human flourishing. And so we wanna get God's view on singleness. And again, this is a matter where the truth will set us free to live in a greater freedom on these matters. Can I say a quick word to the the youthful singles in the room? Can I encourage you to really listen in? See, I've been a pastor in this context for a little while now, and most mature singles that I speak to tell me that they never thought that singleness was going to be their journey. But they often speak about how they unhelpfully idolized marriage for a very long time, which made their journey of coming to terms with their own singleness that much more difficult for them. So I think that everybody in the room, especially if you're a youthful single, right? And you kind of heads up and just contemplating who it's gonna be. I think we do well to make sure that we all get God's view on this and that we carry that. I'm gonna give a bunch of reasons, other reasons for that just now. But I think also before we get really stuck in, I wanna acknowledge where the the reality of how the church has often got this wrong. See, the the church has not always understood or or kind of worked out these dynamics brilliantly, right? And today I wanna grab a moment to recognize that and to not acknowledge to our singles where we we can recognize we've missed it. And I wanna call all of us as the church to be the church that God calls us to be deeply to think about these things so that we can live them out. Let's own firstly where we haven't always been the best version of the body of Christ to our singles. See, sometimes we've made singles feel excluded or second rate in some way. Maybe with insensitive statements or just a general lack of compassion on these things. Sam Albury tells the I thought the sharpest story where he says uh, someone in his church spoke to him and said, hey, when it comes to kind of marrieds particularly being insensitive, I just wanna point out that saying to a single person at a wedding that maybe you'll be next is about as sensitive as saying to an old person at a funeral the same thing. (laughs) Maybe you'll be next. And see, what does happen is that, that, that so often kind of in the context of community, people mean to say well-meaning things, and yet it comes across in, in not actually portraying what they deeply believe and what they want for you. Let's make, let's make sure that we're a people that, we, we, that think about our words, right? Think about how the seemingly innocent statements like, it's only a season, or introducing our our spouses as my better half, both doesn't reflect our theology and can also leave some people feeling and questioning and wondering, am I only half a person? 
Secondly, I think we can own where we haven't always recognized and prioritized the singles amongst us. With ministries and events like we've got, right? We've got ministries and events for men and for ladies. And if you're going to have a baby, we've got a thing for you. And if you want to become a member, we've got a thing for you. And if you want to go to uh, expecting to get married, there's something for you. And been married for a long time and got problems, there's something for you. There's, there's something for everyone, right? And at times, we haven't prioritized our singles. And I think there's two possible reasons for that. One, because we've dropped the ball and we want to own that. And we say, hey, there's an event, single Sunday lunch, and you're invited. We're not saying that's everyone's cup of tea. And if that's not your thing and you're not wanting to hang out with a bunch of other singles, then just skip it like most people skip half the other events in the church, right? It's, it's just, it's there, it's there for you. It's there for you. That wasn't a dig. That was just a, that was just a be free. Be free. But one of the other realities is we really want to call our singles into everything. We hope that our singles are at all our men's things and women's things and in the life of community and life group and all that kind of stuff. And we want to say, okay, now you've got this other group for you, right? But actually, we've heard the, the, in, the kind of ask for more moments of connection, and, and that's a response to that. So let's make sure that we recognize and prioritize the singles amongst us. But it doesn't just happen at a church level. Here's what I want to challenge you in personally. Now, many of you in the room are single yourselves, so this might not fully apply, but I want you to get this right from the beginning of your lives because actually it's, it's about how you build the fabric of the community that you're a part of. If you're married in the room, I want to encourage you to not just do stuff with marrieds. It's not like you kind of graduate into the married club and now we just hang out with those friends. It happens. It happens. Include singles. If you're married or maybe even you've got a family, do you only just go away with other families or, or are you open to including Singles, members of this community, brothers and sisters, let's make sure that not just at the kind of church level, but at the church level, we get this right. We do our best to be the family of God. Thirdly, I want us to own that the church globally and here in our context haven't always taught well on God's high view of singleness and singleness and sexuality. Tim and Kathy Keller write a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And in this book on marriage, they write a chapter. Chapter seven is all about singleness. And, it, and it's, it's a brilliant kind of, kind of unpacking of singleness. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to, uh, to go and do that. But what he does is he points out how subtle kind of mistruth, bad warped theology creeps its way into the church and we somehow kind of just accept it, right? And, and he makes a couple of statements around what you might hear Christians saying, that's wrong, with some sassy remarks to them, right? He says this, you might sometimes hear Christians say, as soon as you satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. He says, you're too picky. You might hear some people say that. You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs a broader parameters in which to work. A third one, and this one I, I, I've heard the most, most probably. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Or worse still, this is my ad in here, this insinuates that if still single, you obviously aren't wonderful yet. See, there are many subtle and some not so subtle ways and wrong and unhelpful things that get said in church and in the context of spiritual community that can actually undermine God's high view of singleness. Like preachers who only ever stand up here and do the check-in on their marriage or their family or being Peppa Pig. What are we, you, God? Daddy Pig, hey? We're all like, hey, Daddy Pig, and we get the little, the, 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 the kind of check in on, cuz the reality is what happens in that moment, if that's the only thing you ever see us preachers and leaders checking in on, you kind of go, yep, that's what, that's kind of the gold standard of identity, married parents. When last did I check in, hey guys, so good, just want to give you the updates on my friendship groups, we're doing great, we played some poker on Friday night, I came fourth, man, I was close, 
But it was a big hand at the end, and I love those guys. We just do spiritual community together. We do poker, we do life, we do real, ah, so good. Absolutely love living out that value of friendship that the Bible makes much of. Ever heard a preacher do that? I've never done it. The reality is we miss it when we subtly send these signals like Veronica was picking up of kind of going, this is what's most important about my identity, that I'm a husband and I'm a father. That is not true. That is not true from scripture. And we've got to check ourselves on that. And I'm just messing with God, right? I love hearing about you being daddy pick. But this, <laughs> that one's gonna stick, I was about to say. I was just about to say that. I was like, that one, we're gonna get way more distance out of just, than just tonight. But here's the deal, coming out of freshly looking at this and grappling with God's word in my preparation today, I just wanna say that I believe it is absolutely vital for us as individuals and as community that we get God's view on this. And I'm gonna help us do that hopefully. And how are we gonna do that is we're first gonna look at four stories that are told in our culture today about singleness and sexuality. And then we're gonna look at the God story of God's view on sexuality. So these four stories are are other stories. They're kind of cultural narratives that are just in the ether, accepted and and kind of uh, propagated by us in society. And, and, And these cultural stories put a pressure on us or they inform us, they inform our perspective. So here's the first one. The first cultural story, right? that is very prevalent in society today is the no offspring, no future story about singleness. See, in this story, there's big pressure to marry and to bring about children and the belief that marriage is gonna secure your future. Because you don't wanna be lonely when you're older, right? And the family name, but I don't know what's happening. What must I do, Dill? I'll be very <laughs> for actions, actions. In this no offspring, no future kind of cultural narrative, a family name and a legacy is a real priority. It's very important. And this is a very true kind of societal story and pressure, particularly for people from non-Western cultures. All the people who come from kind of more, uh, not rural, but kind of African and, and yes, rural context, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're just trying to get your degree, but every time you phone mom, she's like, hey, so have you met anyone nice yet? And did you hear that whoever you grew up with, that little boy down the road, such a lovely young guy, you know he's a lawyer now. And there's this subtle kind of pushing of this kind of cultural narratives that if you have no marriage, uh, no offspring, you have no future. And there's a pressure for you to not miss your moments in this regard. The second story, cultural story that's out there is that marriage is ultimate. It's the second story. This story says that life only really begins when you get married and have a family. Before that, you're just a junior member of society. You see this reinforced when you, as a single, go on holiday with your extended family and you get given a back room with no view because, (laughs) hey, it's, it's just you. You can do with the small room at the back there. You see this more soberly and sadly in the context of work environments where Singles are said, hey, you, you, you're single. Please, can you move to that place? Can you take the transfer because the rest of the team's married? Without people being sensitive to the reality that for a single, you've got to work that much harder to establish a relational network and you don't have the safety of your marriage or your family to just retract into wherever you are. After one of the meetings this morning, two different people came up to me and they said, I have personally experienced in my workplace where I didn't get a bonus and I was told, I mean, I didn't get an increase and I was told that we needed to spread that amongst the two married people in the team because they they had families to look after. And another person uh, spoke about how they were often asked to work on weekends because, hey, they're single. 
These are the realities where kind of society just says, hey, marriage is ultimate and that's gonna get priority and preferential treatments. In this story, when marriage is ultimate, you can find yourself in a place of waiting and looking. The third story is the serial monogamy story. The Urban Dictionary says serial monogamy is this, or a monogamist, is a person who spends as little time as possible being single, moving from the end of one relationship to the beginning of a new relationship as quickly as possible, and you've got them in your mind, right? This is the romantic love story chaser. Well, they they driven by the Moulin Rouge kind of theme song, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to be loved and to receive loved in return. How does it go? Something like that. This is the fear of being alone story. This is where you're looking for the one, that person to which you can say, you complete me. A person to which you can say, you had me at hello. All the movie lines, you've been waiting to store up for them. But in this story, we're introduced to the idolatry of the soulmate. The idolatry of the soulmate. In this story, you hear people saying something like, I want someone who will fulfill every vacancy in me. Someone who will awaken in me my dormant gifts. Someone who will continually enrapture me in otherworldly emotional bliss. And you wouldn't mind if they ideally are a surgeon with the undergrad in law and part-time modeling career, right? <laughs> that's, that's, you laugh, but that's, that's how people think. And, and there's this desire, this kind of moving on and chasing the next thing. But here's the sad part. There is a very real Christian version of this serial monogamy story about the one when unhelpfully the church has promoted this perception that somewhere in scripture God has said that there is one person out there that is the one for you and you have to be the Shrek who goes to find your Fiona until you find your Fiona right and the truth is that the Bible doesn't describe that story now all three of these all three of these kind of cultural stories uh, they negative they negative and they more kind of traditional views on singleness but they all carry with them what i would say is the essence of the shame of singleness can you see how all three of those cultural narratives carry with them a bit of shame of singleness John Tyson says that often what this does, this shame of singleness, those are my words, but he speaks about the same pressure. And then he says, this causes many single people to feel like they're caught in some kind of singleness purgatory, where you're just waiting for someone to come and release you and set you free. For Christian singles, you desire God showing up in your life, but most probably even just a bit more than that, you desire that Prince Charming or that Fiona to show up in your life. None of these views are God's view on singleness, even though they're very, very prevalent in our world today. And, and I'm sure as many singles in the room, you, you've picked them up, you sense the pressure of these things. And then there's, there's one more. And this, if those three are kind of on the negative side of the spectrum, this last kind of societal story is on the more kind of positive side. And it's this, that sex is just fun and for everyone. That's the fourth story. That sex is an appetite. It's just play for adults. It's only consent is required. And here, celibacy or, or sexual abstinence are seen as dangerous forms of self-denial. And here many have a view that being truly human is to express yourself fully and obviously that must include sexually and to deny that is to not be truly alive. Sam Albury, who's my age, points out a couple of movies from our kind of 20s, the early 2000s, right? And he says, society... Uh, watches movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin as comedies because the notion of getting to 40 and never having had sex is so absurd to many in society that it's comical. The movie 40 Days and 40 Nights is another example of this. The premise of a person embarking on doing, literally the tagline is embarking on doing the impossible, having no sex for 40 days and 40 nights. Man, that is unthinkable. 
Sex is fun and sex must be for everyone. That's the fourth narrative. Now this view is is very different to the shame of singleness view. This is the other side of the equation. This is the positive progressive view, but this is the self-indulgence of singleness kind of end of the spectrum where there's freedom and flexibility and, and particularly there's sexual opportunity. The belief that sex will satisfy us that must be pursued at all costs, that it'll meet our needs, that it'll provide deep contentment for us. We've heard already in the series, right? That, that's, just, that's just not true. Sex that takes place for what I get out of it is not good sex. Sex that happens outside of long-term uh, intimacy is not safe sex. And sex that, pro- uh, that promises to fulfill our deepest longings in our hearts will disappoint us. It is lying to us. Tim Keller speaks about how today in our worlds, where we have the mix of the traditional and also the progressive, what can happen is many people in our world and in society today find themselves trapped in the worst of both idolatries, where they, they're hating themselves on this side for being single and feeling like a failure and, and not living up to the idol of marriage and they're feeling all the pressure, the shame of singleness and a pressure from all their family. And on the other side, they're also sleeping around, chasing after love and sex and giving into the idol of sexual fulfillment and the indulgence of singleness, which is promoted more on that progressive side. But unfortunately, they find themselves stuck in both and fulfilled by neither. He says that if you're a Christian single caught in this worst of both idolatries, then you have not encountered Jesus at a worldview level. Because if that's you, then you're just conforming to this world's. And we know what Jesus says about that. And, and likely you are experiencing feeling the weight of its brokenness, the fruit of chasing after this kind of idolatry. Now, I hope, I hope there aren't many of our Christians caught in that, kind of, in that kind of place, the worst of both idolatries. But let me just say, if you are, if you are, this is a great place to journey together because we believe, and we're gonna look at that now, We believe God has a great view of singleness and we believe God has given a community to journey with you. And we'd love to invite you, if you're caught in cycles of pornography or chasing after sexual expression or or, or adventure in some kind of way as a single and you need to break free of that, won't you come and speak to us? We believe that is real. It is not uncommon. But we need to be the kind of environment where it's okay to stand with people and breaking out of those uh, sexual addictions, etc. So, all of us, we must make sure that both our worldview of singleness and of marriage are God's worldview. And we must give ourselves to the sanctifying curriculum of whatever God has for us, wherever we find ourselves. Let's look at the biblical vision for singleness and sexuality. And for that, we're gonna to turn to Matthew chapter 19. We started our, seri- our sermon series in Matthew chapter 19. We looked at the first six verses. Jesus is speaking, some of the kind of uh, haters of his day come out. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to catch him off guard. They ask him this tricky question about divorce. And he, he pretty much kind of lays a blueprint for us in how we as Christ followers are to deal with tricky matters. And he pretty much firstly kind of looks to God's word. Have you not read? He banks his life uh, on God's word, his word. And then he says, so he, he does that firstly. And then he finds himself also saying, we have to look to God's design, God who created them, male and female, he created them. And then thirdly, Jesus calls us to submit human kind of submission to God's authority. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so we get this blueprint of how we deal with these tricky issues. But now we pick up in verse seven and a second question, a follow-up question is asked of Jesus by these Pharisees. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. 
God's kind of going, hey, there's been some concessions made here, but that is not my design or my intent or my heart. And so I say to you, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There's a whole kind of sermon here on divorce, which we're not gonna get into. But then let's continue to see where he goes to next. He's just been asked two questions by the Pharisees. Now his disciples, his closest followers, they lean in and they make a statement. Verse 10, then the disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And they kind of, you can hear them, they're not kind of stating that. They're kind of going, it is better better not to marry like, hey, back us up here, Jesus, is this right? These are his closest followers and he says this to him, he says to them, verse 11, but he said to them, and you can imagine his voice kind of toning down and them leaning in as he's about to pretty much give a verdict on marriage to them. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Isn't that an interesting answer given by Jesus? Man, he starts out being questioned about uh, divorce. Then he gets into answering questions about marriage here. And he's now speaking about eunuchs. What is Jesus saying, right? But he introduces this in classic Jesus style, this very powerful and provocative imagery. He tells a story as he so often does in a sense with imagery that helps drive this point he's making home. And, and, and he would have, he, he would have uh, they would have understood two kind of eunuch types in their time, right? Eunuchs who've been so from birth, that's intersex people. Statistically these days, 0.5% of babies born. And then he says a second group of people, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. We're gonna speak to this a little bit more in, in, in the weeks to come, right? But eunuchs is, who have been made so by men is speaking about a kind of ancient tradition of castrating male servants uh, and courts officials, either to make them less of a sexual threat or for punishment or sometimes for some political reasons. And, and people would have known about both of those categories of eunuchs in the day. And yet Jesus introduces this third category. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus kind of interjects and, and he, he suggests the unthinkable here, that there should be some who voluntarily don't marry, don't have children, don't participate in sexual activity for the sake of serving God and His kingdom. A crazy idea, but, but Jesus, the God-man, knowing everything about all He's created, suggests this idea, not kind of like half-heartedly, but He confidently says that this reality. He says it's gonna be hard, for many to grapple with, but he, he puts this forward. A totally unheard of idea, but what a profound kind of imagery and point, right? See, most of the people in that day would have known that the eunuchs in those times were workers often for royal institutions or families. They were in a sense kingdom builders in their time with no sexual distraction or temptation, with no familial distraction or personal dynasty building with none of the time-consuming elements of family life, they were the kind of people who were able to be fully focused on the job at hand and building their master's kingdom. And Jesus is saying there's some Christ followers that can choose to do the same for his kingdom. Leave behind the idea of personal family building, the idea of sexual pleasure, the idea of distractions and the dynamics of family so they can be fully devoted, so they can be fully focused. It's so radical, but this is just like Jesus, right? I can hear the room going quiet. What are you exactly asking me to do here? Can I just state that when Jesus is introducing this third category, he has now left the physical realm and he's now speaking about a state of being, not a physical castration, important to say. 
But once again, has Jesus changed his track? He has not. Once again, Jesus is doing what he consistently does. He's calling people to a radical outworking of their faith and followership of him. He backs the idea. He doesn't back down. Jesus clearly believes in it. He sees it as a viable option for human flourishing. And importantly, Jesus gives us a a few words of qualification as he does this, right? Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. See, Jesus makes three things clear here. Firstly, Jesus uh, makes this clear, that this call to permanent singleness isn't for everyone. And some people can now exhale, right? It's not for everyone. Jesus still has a high view of marriage, but man, for Jesus to even consider suggesting this, he must have a very high view of singleness too. So the second thing that we see here in what Jesus says is that there's some to whom this is given. This is a tricky dynamic to pin down here and a a fair amount of my work in looking at things uh, over the last few days has been in this area of trying to understand this. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you may ask, Ryan, is uh, is, is Jesus speaking here about the gift of singleness? To which I will say, uh, confidently, uh, I think so. Why? Because not everyone, if we look at this gift of singleness, is exactly sure what the gift of singleness actually is. But clearly it would seem that Jesus is speaking about singleness being given to some. And you can imagine that when that is well received, it can be experienced like a gift. And, and Paul kind of experiences that way. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Paul speaks about his singleness as a gift. And every time Paul speaks about a gift, he, he's not speaking about a superpower that someone receives. He's just speaking about, hey, this person has that quality or that ability, and that allows them to serve others and to build up uh, the church generally. So if you've got the gift of this thing or the gift of that, that's how Paul sees it. And actually when he speaks about his singleness, he's largely, actually you can pick up from what he says, he's largely going, man, the gift of the spaciousness that I have and without the familial responsibilities, that is a gift to me being able to fully deploy myself to ministry. That's, that's kind of how Paul sees the gift. But I think as I've looked at this and studied, I would say Sam Albury and the way he kind of encapsulates it has been the most helpful to me. And he suggests that the gift of singleness is not just the capacity of singleness. And it's definitely not some super, super special superpower of singleness, which some have and others don't. Rather, he sees the gift of singleness as the state of being single and then primarily it being either experienced as a gift or not a gift based on the way a person sees and experiences their singleness and their contentment in it. Does that make sense? That helps us understand the third point that Jesus makes here, and that is that a a receiving needs to take place by those who are able, those who are able doesn't seem like Jesus is taking this lightly, right? He says, the one who is able, let him receive it. This actually sounds like he's kind of calling some people to courage and to conviction in their singleness. And he's saying, hey, if, if you can receive it, go for it. Which means, again, that he's confident in it, even though it can sound and, and be so unthinkable to so many. This was so radically countercultural. This was as countercultural to say it then as it is to say it today. See, in, in the Jewish vision of the day, the Jewish vision was that marriage was a command and that celibacy was really to be deplored. Some, something like our shame of singleness reality today. The Greek vision of the day was that the eunuchs were to be looked down on as as a lower class. See, they had mutilated the the human beauty, which was paramount in their society. Much like sex is overly elevated and celebrated in our society today. The Roman vision of the day, well, that was a, a vision of progression and establishment. And as a woman, you lost everything in divorce or the death of a spouse 
And because of that, there were laws. Caesar put laws in place that all women had to remarry inside of two years if that was their experience so that they wouldn't become a burden to society. Kind of like our marriage is ultimate and can make you feel like your life is on pause until you married, right? See, it's into this cultural environment that Jesus radically and unapologetically paints another picture of possibility. A celebrated, secure, purposeful singleness where there's no fear of being single because God is ultimate and He is enough for you. And because there's no shame because you are His son, daughter, chosen, received, welcomed, accepted, involved. And your life is not on hold at all because He has all the promises and all the opportunities of His kingdom and they are available to you. Jesus was a guy who who knew the Scriptures, right? Jesus knew the Scriptures and we can't actually tell this from Scripture whether or not He had in mind this Isaiah passage about eunuchs when He brought up the subject of eunuchs in His answer to this question from His disciples. But either way, I think maybe He did, but either way, the reality is that the Scriptures make some beautiful promises that in a sense kind of foresaw this reality. Isaiah 56 verse three says this in speaking to eunuchs. It says, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, a tree bearing no fruits or or, or in a sense serving no purpose. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. See, Scripture is clearly stating that though if you say yes to this kind of singleness, which can feel like a a kind of family, I mean a marriage, a family, an offspring castration, if you give yourself to that willingly, God is saying, I have in store for you so much more than you can attain within yourself in these realities. That's the promise of the scripture. Don't see yourself like a dry tree. Not true. In God's economy, there is so much more to be gained by being single in the household, God's household, which is independent of your own children and family, better than sons and daughters fully blessed and welcomed in rewards that can never be taken away. See what's happening here in this Isaiah passage is that God again is declaring good kingdom theology, right? Good kingdom theology reminding us that we live in the overlap of the ages. There is the already dynamics of the kingdom having come, but there's the not yet dynamics of the kingdom not having fully come just yet. And we're stuck between those ages. And so what we can do is we can realize that, hey, we, we, we can get married. Jesus leaves that as a viable option on the table. And that's a beautiful picture and display of, of God in the church, right? That's what scripture says. We looked at that last week. But also we can give ourselves to singleness and not feel like we need to take this marriage thing for, as being for everyone. And we can find ourselves living fully secure in that and signposting to a future reality. Good kingdom theology helps us to get a good balance of both singleness and marriage in this overlapping time and to not take either of them too seriously. The ultimate family and the ultimate wedding is still to come. Our deepest desires for every single one of us, married or unmarried, will not be fulfilled in this time by any of these things. But one day, one day they will be fulfilled. One theologian powerfully said this, Jesus is more worried about your holiness than your happiness. Because he knows, right? 
Jesus knows that those two things are not a dichotomy. They are not disconnected. When we live in the fullness of His holiness and, and we walk in His will and His ways, we live most content and most fulfilled. That leads to ultimate happiness. And the problem is we chase after happiness and we don't find holiness and we end up getting neither. Whether we have singleness or marriage, the great challenge is will we accept and participate in His holiness curriculum that each, mar each of marriage and singleness provide to us? Jesus, He just challenges them. He challenges them to live for what's eternal. Listen to how he continues in verse 29 of chapter 19 in Matthew. It says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's a beautiful promise of rich inheritance for our singles. And they find it in him. So where does all of this kind of go to? What, is it, what does it lead to? This guy, uh, Stanley Hauswas, he wrote a book. I don't know how to say his surname. He wrote this book called Community of Character. And he points out that Christianity in history became the first religion or worldview that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Because Jesus himself was single. He was the ultimate display and celebration of singleness. He made himself a eunuch, not physically, but he made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He lived a single and celibate life. He forgo any sexual expression and yet he was a fully fledged person. He lived out this very teaching that he taught. He was the most complete and perfect human who ever lived. And he didn't feel the need to get married or to have sex to display that perfect humanity. And here's what's beautiful about Jesus and his singleness. He accessed everything he needed from his heavenly father. And he experienced deep friendship with his brothers and he enjoyed rich and wide community, right? With mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And when he's leaving, he's saying, hey, take care of all of them, please. This is, these are my people, take care of them. And so did Paul. He, he was the most kind of well-known, famous missionary in the world. He wrote a lot of the New Testament single. And his personal greetings and affection is seen all over the pages of the New Testament as he built deep, meaningful webs of relationship wherever he went, but he found himself on mission fully for Jesus and not distracted by some of the other dynamics of marriage and children. See, both Jesus and Paul were such great examples to us of what it means to successfully live with a high view, God's view of singleness, and, and they radically invite others to be disciples along with them of Jesus in this area. One last thing in the Christian view of singleness. Singleness is our forever state. Singleness is our forever state. See, marriage is not gonna transfer into this to come dynamic. So right now, your singleness can be a signpost to the state that we will all be in one day, fully devoted to Jesus, married in a sense to Him as a collective, His bride. Christian writer Paige Brown reminds us of this by saying, let's face it, singleness cannot be inherently an inferior state of affairs. If it were, heaven would be inferior to this world's. This is God's view of singleness and sexuality. The scriptures value singleness. Jesus sees it as a strong option for those that are keen to walk closely with him. Jesus sees it uh, doesn't see it as a second-rate option or, or that singles are half-formed people in some way. He was the perfect display of that. Jesus also doesn't think that everyone must stay single. But Jesus clearly sees that singleness 
does equate to no sexual activity like becoming something of a eunuch for him because that sexual activity is created for the context of a loving, long-term, committed marriage, relational context. But he says, importantly, don't feel like you've lost out in any way if that's you. Brooks Waldron states the vision of singleness like this. Singleness is uniquely designed to showcase the sufficiency and superiority of God. Because singles are called to find in God what those who are married often find in one another. Those who are called to marriage often find in their spouses love, affirmation, security, comfort, companionship, and intimacy amongst other things. For those who are single, however, having a sense of these things is often less certain or immediate. And this requires them to depend on God in a greater way for the fulfillment of such needs and desires. Singleness points in a unique way to the truth that all our needs and desires are found ultimately in Christ alone. Sam Albury says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, the idea of a life laid down for another, then singleness shows us its sufficiency, that God is all about what we need and we don't have to just survive in this world. We can truly thrive. Pastorally, I just wanna recognize that Jesus does provide a choice here. Let the one who can receive it, receive it. That's what he's saying. I think some can gain God's view of this and say, hey, that's me. I wanna put my hand up. Inga alluded to, hey, I wanna, I wanna seriously consider this singleness thing, part of the reason she went on the course. Maybe I'm putting words in her mouth, but right? That's what I heard her saying. Like I need to understand singleness in a greater understanding. But the reality also here is that for those who find themselves single, I think there is a, a receiving it, a choice to receive your current reality of singleness, whether that is permanent or temporary in this spirit of what Jesus is saying here. And I think that, that kind of will you receive it in that right spirit is available to everyone in everyone that is single. It's so important. It's so important because this counters those other views. It allows for the possibility of contentment in and appreciation for singleness. It takes the pressure off you for feeling like, man, I've got to kind of get married to be a, a full person. It, it de-escalates sex out of this pedestal place that it is in society. And importantly, it raises us into a helpful understanding of how God sees this. So lastly, I just wanna say this. Jill Blackshaw, one of the singles in our community historically, she said this, she said, this is the unique opportunity. She's speaking to the singles of, of Common Ground. This is the unique opportunity and perhaps even responsibility we have as singles. If we can learn to be content in our singleness, we can best show the sufficiency of the gospel that Jesus truly is enough. We can best live a life demonstrating total dependence on God alone for all things. In doing so, we can be a reminder to those around us that the right place for our hope and trust is in God alone. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's beautiful. A challenge to our non-singles in the room. Can I encourage you to make sure that you raise your gaze, right? Raise your gaze to, to understand how God sees singleness. Make sure that you, you participate in not promoting an unhelpful view of singleness. Secondly, can I encourage you to, to raise your game? Like we spoke about, invite uh, singles in and let's be a true expression of community and help us as a community to get this right. I wanna encourage you in that if you are a married. If you're a single, I wanna encourage you to raise your view, to make sure that you understand God's view of singleness. But here's, here's a second challenge on that. Will you gain, whether you're single and hoping not to be very soon or whether you're thinking you're gonna be single for a long time, can I encourage you to get a specific vision for your singleness, whether you see it as temporary or more long-term? Have a vision for your singleness. What is God calling you to in this time? What do you need to settle in this time? 
Secondly, I wanna encourage you not just to raise your view and, and kind of get God's view and a vision for your singleness. I wanna encourage you to raise your personal game to grapple with and to journey with the realities of, of what singleness means in, in your life. And I want to encourage you to invite others into that reality. Invite others in. And that comes to the third one is raise our community game. Singles, we need to hear from you. We need to participate in this reality of being spiritual community in the most beautiful and wonderful ways. And we only do that when we team together and do life together and partner together. I remember one of the older ladies in our church a couple of years ago, she had lost her husband. And she came up to me the one Sunday and she just said to me, Ryan, I would love you to just give me hugs whenever you see me. Says, since I lost my husband, I've realized that uh, I'm missing quite a bit of uh, legitimate physical touch in my life. And I just think hugs are a great expression of that. And we're better to get them than in the church. So feel free to give me hugs whenever you see me. Honestly, it brought me to tears. And ever since then, I've had the great joy of bounding across the room and going and giving her a great hug. And it's amazing because when I read the scriptures about mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, she's one of the first people that pops into my mind. Why? Because we hug. What a beautiful expression of community and raising our game. Guys, there's so much more in that we're not gonna get to. C.S. Lewis told us that we over elevate the reality of kind of sexual love and we under anticipate and prioritize relational friendship love. There's so much there but we're gonna quit where we are for now because it's been long already. Let's pray together. God, there is a confidence that comes to us as your people when we gain a right seeing of things when we gain a, an understanding of your heart on matters. And God, as is often the case with Jesus, your words in the scriptures, they, they're hard hitting. They seem to flip our kind of views on their heads. They seem to call us out of our self-orientation and, and to gain a greater kingdom view and to, to question whether or not are we giving our lives fully to you. God, I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come and minister amongst us tonight. Minister your affirmation. Minister, God, your comfort to those who need comfort. Minister your clarity to those that are trying to understand. God, give us a view of singleness, not in a competition with marriage, but of singleness that is right and beautiful. And God, may we find ourselves identifying with you and participating with you. Those who find themselves in this place of singleness, God, won't you give them a clarity of what you are calling them to? God, we pray that we would find a community that rises to the challenge of what it means to be brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, what it means to be singles and marrieds and families. And God, that we would find ourselves expressing the beauty of what it means to be your church. Won't you lead us in these regards? We pray this all in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen.